inspiring and advancing Stoics to another episode of Meet the Modern Stoics. This is where today's leading Stoic advocates share ancient wisdom that you can apply for better living today. I'm your host, Scott Perry, creator of the StoicGuitarist.com. Get guided and go Stoic. Adopt the posture of a bulletproof creative, the mindset of a thriving artist, and deliver better work to the right people. Remember that Stoicism is a philosophy of action, not navel-gazing. Listen to the wisdom delivered in this episode, and then apply it to your life, your work, and relationships today. Let's meet today's guest. Welcome to another episode of The Stoic Creative. This is another broadcast in a special series called Meet the Modern Stoics. This is where today's leading Stoic advocates share ancient wisdom that you can apply for better creating and living today. I'm your host, Scott Perry, author of The Stoic Creative. Develop a posture and mindset of excellence as an artist. Visit thestoiccreative.com to download the first several chapters for free. Get the goodness, get guided, and get going. Let's meet today's guest. Our guest today is Peter Adam Adamson. Peter, welcome to the broadcast. Please introduce yourself to our audience and share a, a, a project that you're currently working on or excited about. Hi, Scott. Thanks very much for having me on the show. It's a great pleasure to be on here. I am like you. I'm a podcaster and uh, someone who's trying to bring philosophy to a broader audience using the tools of the internet and social media. And uh, the project that is obvious for me to tell you about, although we could talk also about some of my academic research later, is a podcast called The History of Philosophy Without Any Gaps. Uh, The website is www.historyofphilosophy.net, but it's also on iTunes and so on. Um, So I'm actually a philosophy professor. I, when I was uh, first launching the podcast, which was already back in 2010, I was a philosophy professor at King's College London. In 2012, I moved my main position here to Munich, which is where I am now. So I'm now at the LMU in Munich, and the podcast is still going strong. So it's coming up on about 300 episodes. And uh, in my kind of day job, I'm a historian of philosophy. What I work on mostly is late ancient and Arabic philosophy, but more generally, I do kind of all of ancient and medieval philosophy. So let's say from like Plato up till let's say the 13th century in Latin and also in Arabic. Um, Most of my published research is actually about late ancient Greek philosophy. So a little bit after the Stoics actually. Uh, So like Plotinus and Neoplatonism. And then uh, even more of my research is about Arabic philosophy. And in a way the, the, point of the podcast is that I wanted to do something that would bring knowledge about the history of philosophy, especially areas of history of philosophy that most non-academics and even a lot of academic specialists in philosophy don't know about. I wanted to bring that information to a broader audience. And also I was listening to a lot of podcasts back in 2010 and I just kind of noticed that there wasn't anything like this. And, uh, I'm apparently not very good at blocking the inference from this is a good idea and somebody should do it to this is a good idea and I should do it. (laughs) So having thought, oh, someone should do a history of philosophy podcast, 
I kind of rashly immediately started thinking about doing it myself, hesitated for a while, and then finally took the plunge thinking it wouldn't be that big a deal or that <laughs> like not go that long, you know. Uh, I thought maybe there'd be a few dozen episodes and it kind of got out of control. Yeah, well, so a couple of things. The first is the podcast is fantastic. I'm somewhere in, this, in the 70s in terms of episodes, but how many episodes are there available right now? Well, there's actually two streams because of, after originally saying that I was not going to cover Indian philosophy, I'm now covering Indian philosophy <laughs> together with a philosopher named Janardhan Ganeri. So there's about 40 of those. And then there's, I think, about 280 episodes of the original feed, which has gone through ancient philosophy, Hellenistic philosophy, late ancient philosophy, philosophy in the Islamic world. And now I'm sort of creeping up on the end of medieval, which has been a long section. Right. So, I mean, there's so much material. And I think the, the episodes on Stoicism begin at episode 60 or thereabouts. And I think there's, there's three or four or five Mm -hmm. Um, and there's some really interesting ones about the other schools. Um, stoicism, you know, gets, gets the biggest spotlight, of course. Um, but you do talk about, um, Epicureanism and, uh, is it Sir, how do you pronounce the? The Cyrenaics. Cyrenaics, thank you. To me, the, the three main schools in Hellenistic are actually the Stoics, the Epicureans, and the Skeptics. Right. And they, that actually was the first time in the podcast that I ran into a problem that comes up more often, which is what do you do? So if you're trying to go through the history of philosophy, step by step, sort of figure by figure, text by text, what do you do when things are happening simultaneously? Right. And so when I hit Hellenistic philosophy, I had to try to decide whether to, for example, just talk about Hellenistic ethics and talk about Stoic Epicurean ethics at the same time or what. And I decided to cover the three schools kind of in sequence. So I did Stoicism, Epicureanism, and Skepticism. And then when I got to medieval, I had the same problem because um, medieval philosophy really has three parts. So there's philosophy in the Islamic world, which nobody thinks about very much. There's philosophy in the Byzantine Empire, which really nobody thinks about very much. I'm going to be starting to do that next year. And then there's medieval philosophy in Latin, which is what I'm covering now. And so again, I, I sort of took them one at a time. So I did the Islamic world and actually took the story of the Islamic world all the way up to the 20th century. And then I went back and I've been doing Latin medieval. So from like the ninth century down to the 14th century. And now uh, next week, next week, sorry, I wish next uh, <laughs> year, I'll be covering Byzantine philosophy. And then I'm going to go from Byzantine philosophy into the Renaissance, which by the way, is maybe interesting um, to people who like Stoicism because there's a recovery of Stoicism in the Renaissance and early modern philosophy. So actually, we'll get back to Stoicism again eventually. Oh, that's awesome to know. Yeah. So that's, it's a great podcast. You do such a great, I mean, it's, uh, the, the episodes are relatively short, 20, 30 minutes, I believe. Yeah. And there's, um, there's interviews mixed in. So some, most of them are scripted. And I try to keep those around 20, 25 minutes. And the interviews, depending on, you know, how the interview goes, I, I usually keep them like 25, 30 minutes. So it's a pretty short episode, pretty short podcast. Yeah. Yeah. Just, just, just perfect for my three mile run, by the way. Um, thank you for that. Um, so just, I just want to pull this one thread because it, it will be of interest to my audience, which is uh, 
who are people that self-identify as creatives and or Stoics that are kind of looking for how Stoic philosophy can help them realize their potential as creative or artistic people. And you, the way that you said that you got into the podcast, which is exactly how I got into this podcast, was oh, that looks pretty easy and um, nobody's doing this, so I'll do that. Um, and then diving in and then, uh, you know, getting into the weeds and realizing that, you know, <laughs> it's a journey that possibly has no, no end. Um, it, it really just depends on people's, you know, interest um, and, you know, the feedback that you're getting and, and that sort of thing. Um, I don't know if you found a way to, to make a living doing this, but I certainly have um, done nothing but spend money on this podcast. <laughs> um, but I, you know, just, just to pull on that thread a little bit, I mean, you know, you, 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 pro, you, I, uh, you introduce yourself as a, as a philosopher, professor of philosophy, um, and a podcaster. Um, but those, you know, there's uh, obviously, do you, do you think at all about the creative process as it applies to your work in either philosophy or as, as a podcaster? Yeah, I think more in terms of the, po the podcast, because, um, I mean, in some ways, what you do as a researcher in philosophy is pretty clear. I mean, you try to write well and clearly, but it's not nearly as much of a, as it were, an aesthetic production. Actually, I think um, in terms of creativity, I probably in my day job, if I can call it that, um, I, I probably think about teaching more as a creative process. And uh, obviously, when you have the students in the room, you can try things out, see what works. And in fact, you, you always have a very vivid sense of the mood of the room. And so you can immediately tell what's working. You can tell when the students need a joke to wake them up or need you to maybe ask one of them a question or whatever. And one of the things about the podcast is that although you do get feedback from the audience, as you know, um, it's, it's not immediate, right? And in fact, when you launch a podcast, you just sort of hope anybody listens and the kind of feedback you're hoping is for is some downloads. But as the podcast has gone on, I actually have gotten a lot of feedback and um, comments from listeners. And that has actually had a really major impact on the project. So in particular, like I mentioned, when I originally started, I, I explicitly said in the first episode that I was not going to do Indian and Chinese philosophy for what I thought was a very good reason, which is I don't know anything about it whereas I did know about ancient and medieval philosophy. But um, first of all, listeners kept saying, how can you say you're doing the history of philosophy without any gaps if you're not doing all of India and China? And I was like, yeah, that's a good point. And the other thing is, to be honest, I just started covering things all the time that I didn't know anything about. And so I thought, well, if I'm going to be covering whatever, like Tertullian or, uh, you know, 19th century Turkish uh, philosophy, then why not cover Indian philosophy? But even then I was kind of nervous about doing it. And so I, then I hit on the idea of having a co-author. So, but anyway, my point is that that's a, that's a way in which the creative process was really influenced by the audience. Um, and then the other thing is just trying to write about philosophy, sometimes like very technical philosophy. So what I've been covering in the podcast recently in the medieval side, is often very dry, technical, scholastic philosophy, lots of distinctions, you know, like the difference between um, 
intuitive and abstractive cognition and things like that that really don't sound very easy to to understand and the question is then how do you present that in a way that people will appreciate and find interesting and so i try to use you know funny examples i try to just keep like strip it down to be as basic as possible without oversimplifying it and and so in some ways i think of what of the whole project as a kind of experiment like is it possible to do the entire history of philosophy without leaving, leaving anything out, but at an introductory level. So that kind of combination of depth, historical depth and um, completeness with a kind of popular touch. That's, the, that's what I'm shooting for, at least. And I'm sure I don't always manage to get it right, but at least that's the goal. And that is a definitely creative process. Absolutely. And, well, I think you're doing a fantastic job with, with all of those. And it's interesting that you brought, brought up the, the way that um, teaching, which is something that we're kind of, I mean, there's, if you're instructing, really all you're doing is kind of dripping out information in some sort of pre, preconceived, um, you know, academic curricular form. But the act of teaching involves engagement, collaboration, communication, connecting. Um, and, you know, we really have to bring in our creative capacity if we are going to do that well. And the more intentionality and, uh, you know, and the more we think about our motivation for what we're doing and our aspiration for what we're doing, then, you know, that creativity can start to level up to, you know, what I think of as more artistry, which is, um, you know, creatives everybody creates this conversation is an act of creation but if you're doing so with the intention of creating transformation or change or having an impact um, then there's a, artistry involved and a big part of the difference between being a creative and being an artist for me too is artists share their work you know you can be a creative and kind of just hide it in your you know in your drawer uh, or just do it in the you know safety of your your room but if you you hit, put your hands out and say here i made this i hope you like it mm -hmm. as you indicated you open yourself up to this you know the possibility of um feedback or criticism and um i know that when i first launched the broadcast the the i said they're going to be 30 minute introductions and the consistent criticism was they're not long enough and so for me as a musician i thought perfect you know always leave the audience wanting more <laughs> some yeah. people gave me negative reviews simply because i didn't heed their advice to or you know mm. accept their opinion that the broadcast needed to be at least 45 minutes to an hour long instead of 30 minutes um so it just just interesting so while we're on this subject and you brought up the um uh you brought up bringing humor in and and you know ways of connecting i i have been dying since i i reached out to you and asked you to be on the broadcast to ask you this question because i see two underlying themes to every episode that i've listened to so far and those two themes are giraffes mm -hmm. and buster keaton yeah i actually actually brought a giraffe with me perfect <laughs> say hello <laughs> i don't have a picture of buster keaton sorry well, I, I'm sure there is one. It's just not handy, but that's okay. So like, yeah, you're right. It's upstairs. <laughs> poster above my desk where I write the podcast. So what what is the uh, I, I hesitate to say obsession, but um, what 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 is the what, what's the deal? So what's the what is up with the giraffe? Yeah. Okay. So actually, the two the the um, two answers there are very different because um, 
I have a long-standing obsession with Buster Keaton. He's my favorite movie maker, let's say. Uh, I mean, he's the director and the actor, the main actor of all of his films, of course. And I like silent comedy in general, but I'm especially a big Buster Keaton fan. Uh, could easily go on for the next 15 minutes about Buster Keaton, but that would be the rest of the interview. So you probably don't want me to do that. Uh, so I'll just say that everyone should go watch Sherlock Jr. Right. My favorite uh, long feature by Buster Keaton. And if you want to check out a short feature, then watch One Week. Brilliant. Of course, Buster Keaton is very stoic, right? So he, I mean, if you were trying to think of a, of a movie personality who represents stoicism on screen, he might even be the best person you could do. <laughs> also, that's, that's not really why, but um, it happens to be the, the case. So we've identified the stoic stage, finally. It's, it's Absolutely, yeah. It's sort of, <laughs> Because he's called the great stone face, right? He never reacts. Okay. The giraffes actually is in a way, I mean, to be honest, and I don't think I've ever admitted this, <laughs> but it's like, it's totally artificial. So I was never obsessed with giraffes. I don't, I didn't used to have a thing about giraffes now I was <laughs> do. But the re really the only reason is that I was writing some episodes about Aristotle. I think that's the first time I mentioned a giraffe. Mm -hmm. And it's just an obvious example, right? So Aristotle has this idea that natural beings have um, natural purposes. So this is what they call teleology, right? So they're purpose or end directed. And an obvious illustration of this is giraffes have long necks so they can reach leaves on the trees, right? And so I just use this as an example. And then I, I wanted to ha kind of keep going back to the same example. And I just started mentioning giraffes all the time. And it's kind of grew up, took on momentum. Then I wanted to have examples of a particular uh, being as opposed to like a general thing. So I contrast this one giraffe named Hiawatha to the whole species of giraffes. And then it just kind of, again, got out of hand. And it, so it became like a thing that I wanted to put in as a kind of running joke. By the way, there are different running jokes later. Oh, so okay. I, I keep the giraffes, but for example, in the medieval podcasts, I don't really do much with Buster Keaton, and I start mentioning the Marx Brothers all the time. My favorite. So that you'll like those. Excellent. <laughs> so I think um, I think we've just touched on something that's going to make your podcast go viral, and and there's we'll, we'll create a drinking game every time Peter says Buster Keaton. You have to chug a beer or something. That's dangerous. <laughs> well, of course, we, we want people to uh, drink responsibly while drink listening responsibly. To, <laughs> to the kids, podcast. Don't drink too much. Right. Um, so uh, I, it's, it's something that just, I, as I said, I listen to your podcast when I'm on my run. So I'm on my run and I, I actually run, uh, I, I live in a very small town in southwestern Virginia, I live in town, um, but it's just really not safe to, to run on the sidewalks. Um, it, sometimes it's because people are really friendly and they want to kind of come close and wave at you. And other times your um, rivals and enemies want to, you know, clip you at the, at the, inter at, at the crossroads. But I, so I run in, um, in the cemetery, which is, sits on the highest point of the county. You can see all the mountains um, from there, and the clouds are always beautiful. And of course, the tombstones are my reminder, uh, my my memento mori. And I'm it's it's a way of getting some exercise, remembering that my time is finite. I, I better um, get to work. But it's a popular place for people to go to walk and so forth. And I'll be running along, and suddenly I'll start giggling because 
giraffes or Buster Keaton has come up again. <laughs> it's cemetery. So, right. So now I'm, uh, I think I'm, there's a, a fair number of um, my friends and neighbors that think I'm the village idiot because I'm, I go to the cemetery and giggle <laughs> while I, while I run around. Um, so, um, you know, the stoicism part obviously was uh, what drew, uh, that initially drew, drew me to your podcast, but I've been listening from the beginning um, and just finally got through the, that. But, you know, stoicism of all of the Hellenistic philosophies is the one that is currently going through a, a revival and has historically um, experienced these little kind of periods of revival. And while Epicureanism, you know, there's, there's, there's not a Facebook group for Epicureans that has 30,000 members. There's not an yeah. Epicurean week, um, but there has been for a number of years now a Stoicism, a, you know, Stoic week. There has been um, in the States here, Stoicon for several years now. And, you know, there's a, a thriving online community. Um, what is it about Stoicism that you think resonates with, you know, people today? Why, why is it um, becoming a thing again? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I, so I actually, in my, just first of all, from my own experience, um, I mean, I'm a historian of philosophy, right? And so my relationship to the history of philosophy is in a way pretty detached. And in fact, it's probably even more detached than most historians of philosophy because I have such broad historical interests. So a lot of people who are historians of philosophy, they might only work on Kant or Aristotle or Aquinas or whatever. And the reason they're doing that is that they think that that philosopher is basically right or that their theories have a lot to recommend them. And that's not really what drives me at all. I'm much more interested in the long sweep of history. And I'm just as interested in, for example, I'm just as interested in Platonism as I am interested in people with reductive materialist theories, right? So they could have completely opposite philosophical positions and I'm still interested in both equally. And so, to be honest, like usually when I'm reading history of philosophy, well, usually I'm up against the deadline to write a podcast, so I'm just reading as fast as I can. But leaving that aside, usually when I'm reading history of philosophy, I'm not thinking that much about how it sort of speaks to me at a personal level. So it's the, probably the opposite of the way a lot of these modern Stoics think about Stoicism. Um, but the exception to that is Stoicism, and in particular, Marcus Aurelius, and especially Epictetus. So I think that there is just something about the, um, the, the, the teaching of Stoicism, but not just the teaching, it's also the way that they wrote, because what they were trying to do was reach a broad audience and shake people out of their kind of um, dogmatic slumber with respect to how they should live. And it's so direct and um, kind of shocking in some ways. Is, and this is especially true of Roman Stoicism. It's not that true of earlier Stoicism, although to be fair, most of the early Stoic works are lost. Um, that I, I think it's, it's just a, a unique philosophical corpus in that it does speak directly to the reader in a way that very few philosophical texts do. So I think that's one thing. I think another thing is that um, the, the Roman Stoics, who again are the people who, that are mostly read, so Seneca, Marcus, and Epictetus, they don't really come at you with a lot of metaphysics. There is a long backstory about what the Stoics had to say about metaphysics. So for example, they're materialists. They think that God is a body that pervades the cosmos. 
They think that God is fire. They're determinists, etc. They think that bodies can be completely mixed with one another so that a single drop of wine can be mixed with the entire sea. And I assume that most people who are interested in modern Stoicism don't care about almost <laughs> any of that. So that you, you don't, these people on the on the Facebook, I mean, I've looked at a, bit, a, lot, a lot of this stuff actually, and I've never seen anyone on a Stoicism Facebook site arguing that bodies can be completely mixed with one another, even though that was actually a very central Stoic doctrine. So I think it, it, this is kind of a weird thing to say, but part of the modern popularity of Stoicism is that they eventually produced these texts that cut away a lot of the Stoic theory that people would find difficult or irrelevant, whereas that didn't happen with Platonism, for example. So there's no, um, there's no Platonic tradition, really, of just talking about the ethics and not worrying about the forms. Um, there is maybe an exception that proves the rule, which is that Aristotle, who, and of course we have lots and lots of Aristotle, although not by any means everything he wrote. For Aristotle, um, a lot of people who read Aristotle and are really sort of touched by him and want to make contemporary use of him, they just read the Nicomachean Ethics, right? They, they don't read the Metaphysics, they don't read the De Anima, they don't read his logic, and he invented logic, <laughs> but they don't care, they just want to read the Ethics. And, and so something I think is fascinating is the way that um, these, and of course as a historian, in some ways this bothers me, right? Because what I, I'm always trying to contextualize everything and show, show where it comes from and show how it all hangs together. And so actually I, I, would, I would really um, like to remind people in a way that there is a, a real open question about whether Stoic ethics makes sense without Stoic physics and theology. And similarly, whether you can have Aristotelian ethics without Aristotelian epistemology, metaphysics, psychology, because in fact, people tend to take one and not the other. Mm -hmm. And I'm not saying that, I'm not necessarily saying you can't, I'm not saying it's illegitimate, but I think that it's, you should know that you're doing it. And so one of the things I tried to do in the podcast was contextualize the Roman Stoics, who everybody loves, by giving you the lead up. Um, so thinking about Chrysippus and Cleanthes, the early Stoics, think about where they were coming from and how they set the stage for the Roman Stoics, because it really changes your view of them. Yeah, the Roman Stoics were definitely, the writing is mostly about ethics and the, and the logic and, and all that is um, more important probably to the, to the Greeks. Um, well, as we're um, winding down on time, I guess I just want to stick a pin in one thing that you said a couple of times now. You, you talked about tele, um, you know, the, the purpose of things, teleology. Um, and I just, I just want to share a, a, a thought and you, you can respond uh, or tell me if I'm right or wrong. But I mean, one of the things that seems to be, one of the things that I think really resonates with people today that sto about stoicism is it got some things right at a time when they couldn't be scientifically proven. Um, it says that what sets us apart is our capacity for reason and rationality. And what, um, and, and we are inherently uh, social creatures. And so it, it kind of calls us to realize our potential as mm -hmm. rational creatures and to do the best for ourselves and for others as a member of society. Um, and, and, you know, from, I guess one of the reasons why I kind of reconnected with stoicism after a long lapse period um, was that as I looked at the way the world was now, 
and how so many people, you know, were fearful or up in arms about the condition, um, you know, whether it's America or Britain or anywhere else in the world. Um, Stoicism just has a lot to say about, I mean, in some ways it contextualizes things like this is, you know, you could say that things are really bad now, but we've been through worse. You know, we, <laughs> there's been Hitler and there's been, you know, Marco Polo and there's been all, you know, all sorts of periods of history where um, terrible, terrible things were happening, happening to large populations of people. Um, and um, it's, just, but it, it, it provides sort of principles, practices, concepts, ideas, um, kind of a, just an operate, a blueprint and operating system for how you can maintain your tranquility and your sense of flourishing and thriving despite world events, despite your unique situation um, or circumstances. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with all that. I mean, it's, it's definitely uh, a, a philosophy written for a time of crisis in a way, also a time of powerlessness. So speaking to aristocrats who have, I mean, is a bit of a cliche actually, but I think it's true that it's aimed at aristocrats who have lost their influence because of the rise of the empire um, and the concentration of power with the emperor. Um, but I think actually there's something just more general here about ancient ethics and as a whole, not, and it's true of or Aristotle, it's true of the Epicureans, it's even true of the skeptics, which is that their standards for what was a good philosophy, a philosophy worthy of the name, were, if not higher than different from our standards, usually, because they were, I mean, again, there's a bit of a cliche, but it's true. They were trying to tell people how to live mm -hmm. and not just, for example, solve problems about scientific rationality or something. And the ambition of that um, and the commitment that it asks of you is totally different from what you find in most recent philosophy. I do think that um, if, if people find that that's what they like about Stoicism, I think I would also say, you know, it's good, it's good to think about other philosophies that have the same ambition. So like I said, the most surprising example is skepticism. So if you look at a skeptic like Sextus Empiricus, claims that by, by accepting that you have to suspend judgment and stop believing in things, you can achieve the same thing that the Stoics give you or pr promise to give you, which is this freedom from disturbance, ataraxia, right? Um, also in medieval, the medieval period, they also, I mean, they might have all of these technical scholastic distinctions and so on, but ultimately it is all an aid of uh, teaching about how to live and what the good life is. So this kind of technical approach to philosophy is more recent. And I think that we can look back to the history of philosophy as a whole, a lot of it, for this kind of more richer conception of what philosophy can offer. Yeah. And then, I mean, it also was something, it was, comes from a time when philosophy was an everyday activity by everyday people, as opposed to now, it seems we think of it often as being reserved for the places where that you inhabit, like the halls of academia and so forth. Well, that's, um, we're, we're, we're uh, going a little bit over on time. So we're going to wrap things up because we want to be respectful of your time and maintain our um, introductory approach. So um, obviously um, the purpose here was to introduce people to some of your great work. And, um, and so just remind everybody where they can uh, connect with you online and, uh, and your podcast. Uh, sure. So it's called the history of philosophy podcast. 
the website is www.historyofphilosophy.net. But actually, if you just Google the phrase history of philosophy, it comes up right away. Fantastic. Well, thanks everybody for tuning in. Remember that the wisdom that Peter Adamson just shared is useless until you use it. So if you're still with us, we appreciate your time and attention. If you'd like to help ensure the continued development and delivery of this broadcast, visit thestoiccreative.com and click on the fuel tab in the upper right hand corner and then decide what to do next. Now go out there and do better for more and we'll see you next time. Thanks so much, Peter, for being with us. Thank you. Did you enjoy this episode of Meet the Modern Stoics? Then help me spread the stoic goodness and leave a five-star review on iTunes. Tell a friend about the podcast or email me at scott at thestoicguitars.com. Tell me what you think or who I should have on next. It's always great to hear from you. Remember, you can access all of the video versions of these interviews at thestoicguitarist.com. And while you're there, grab the free resource guide and checklist on how to become a bulletproof creative and a thriving artist in any endeavor or enterprise. Thanks for tuning in and for your support and participation. See you next time, fate permitting.